Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is John Wheater. I'm the current head of the, the physics department here. And what, what we're going to do over the next uh, hour is, first of all, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in the department now. Um, and then Derek Stacey, who some of you will probably remember, is going to talk to you about what went on in the department more or less 100 years ago. Um, and Not from personal experience. <laughs> Not from personal experience. <laughs> and uh, then we will come back to what's going on now. And, and Jay, who is an alumnus, will talk to you for a few minutes. So um, what does the physics department do these days? Well, well, you know, everybody has to have a mission statement these days, so we're no exception. And, and the, our, our sort of mission is threefold. The, fir the first thing, of course, is to tackle the most important scientific problems with the proviso that we can only tackle the ones which you know, physicists or physics can get a handle on. But the variety of scientific problems which physicists and physics can get a handle on is much wider than you, uh, you, than you might have thought. Uh, and the, the fields in which we work have evolved substantially over the last 20 or 30 years, well away from areas which you might sort of think of as being traditional, traditional physics. Um, the second thing we do, which is of course absolutely vital, is to generate the next generation of physicists. And that means both undergraduate students and graduate students doing doctorates and postdocs who are just you know, taking the first steps towards becoming ind independent researchers in, in their own right. And of course, if we don't generate and educate the next generation of physicists, it won't be very long before physics disappears. And then the third thing we, we uh, spend a lot of effort on is promoting public understanding of, of uh, physics and, and science more, more generally. Um, it's absolutely vital, I think, that uh, you know, the public understand what what physics and science are for, what they can do, and what they can't do. And uh, you know, there are, the scientists can't answer every question. They can give you all kinds of background to things, but ultimately, you know, some you know, policy decisions, for example, are not science decisions. And, and it's important that people understand that these things can be informed by scientific knowledge, but they can't be taken by scientific knowledge. Who does this? Well, uh, really quite a lot of people. The department's pretty big. Uh, on the 1st of October this year, we will have about 480 people employed in the department, which I think is as big as it has ever been. Um, of those, about 130 people are academic staff. Those are people who are paid to lead research and to teach and who are here long term. Uh, there are about 190 postdoctoral research staff who are mostly people who are here for two or three years, as I said, in the early stages of developing their scientific career. Um, and then there are about 160 technical and support staff. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. There are about 700 undergraduate students. These days, the undergraduate degree is basically a four-year degree, which means that the total number of students in residence has actually crept up over the years. Um, so in, you know, in the early, early 1980s, when it was only, uh, only a three-year degree, uh, the total number of students in residence reading physics was somewhere around about 550, and now it's crept up to closer to 700. There are about 300 postgraduate students, and in physics, these are all people 
who are doing doctorates. We, we don't at the moment have any one-year sort of taught master's courses or things like that. So in that respect, not much has changed. That's how it always was. Um, but the numbers have got bigger. I think the other thing that's changed is that the students and staff really do come from all over the world now. I, I was an undergraduate here of 76 to 79, and I think it's fair to say that the academic staff who taught us were mostly English, and you know, I mean English, not even Scottish or Irish. <laughs> um, and almost all of them had their degrees from Oxford and Cambridge. Okay. Um, I think that's a fair characterization of the department, say, 35 or 40 years ago. It's now completely different. Okay? People come from all over the world. People who've joined the academic staff recently have come from Iran, Puerto Rico, Germany, Russia, one or two Brits, but not all that many. So it's really become a completely uh, you know, cosmopolitan place. And that permeates the whole, the whole society. So even at the undergraduate student level, now more than 10% of our undergraduates are from overseas. By the time you get to graduate students, it's well over 50% of our undergraduates are from, of our graduate students are from overseas. Similarly for postdocs. So physics is a very international business. People move around all the time, going to different institutions, getting different experiences. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so strong. That, that uh, you, you know, you don't work in some kind of Oxford-based isol isolated box, but you're part of a big international community with people flowing in and out all the time, bringing different experience, different attitudes, and so on. So that, that, that sort of accelerates, I think, the pace of evolution but, uh, of, the, uh, you know, of the institution, but it also means that you know, we have very strongest people coming here to, to work. What are the physics degrees like now? I mean, you know, many of you are here because once upon a time you did a physics degree. Um, so what's changed and what stays the same? Well, since, uh, since the early 1990s, the basic undergraduate physics degree has been a four-year degree rather than for three years. Um, so basically all students who, are, who arrive to do a physics degree arrive in the first place to do a four-year degree. Uh, there is an option to stop after three years, uh, and that is either an option which is enforced upon you if you don't do well enough in your second year exams, or is one that you choose to take. And quite a, quite a large number of people do actually stop after three years for one of those two reasons, and quite, you know, quite a significant number of people choose to, choose to stop. And the main reason for that is that they're not intending to pursue a career in science. If you're intending to pursue a career in science, then you would do the, do the four-year degree. So what happens is that about 45 people a year graduate with the, with the BA, as it still is, um, and about 120 people a year graduate with the MPhys. Physics and philosophy is still going. It's the same, pretty much the same size as it was when it was first set up in the late 1960s, and it takes about 15 students a year. And the comments I made, up, I made about the, the physics degree basically now also apply to the physics and philosophy degree. That it's a, it's a four-year degree with a, with a possibility of finishing after three years. Um, then there's the, the DPhil in physics, that's the doctorate, and about 80 students a year do that. And then the big news um, is that after, I think it's fair to say, decades of trying, literally, um, we finally managed to get a mathematical physics degree uh, on the university's books. So, so this is a joint effort between the physics department and the mathematics department, um, which means that uh, when you do an undergraduate degree, when you get to the fourth year, you will have, if you read either physics or mathematics, 
you will have now a different set of options. So if you, you will be able to do, if you're reading mathematics, you will be able to do the mathematics fourth year, okay? Or you could do the mathematical physics fourth year. And if you're reading physics, you could do the physics fourth year or the mathematical physics fourth year. And the mathematical physics fourth year is a joint enterprise between mathematics and physics. Um, I'm, you know, I'm absolutely delighted this, is, this has finally been brought to pass. I think this, is the, this was the third attempt to make it happen. You, know, you don't say Oxford's not a conservative place, right? Making this change has been a big struggle. And um, the, I'm, I'm very, very pleased about this. And the first students will be doing this new option in 2015. 16. And that will uh, you know, give us something that we haven't had in the past, which actually many other major university physics departments have had. There's always been such a course in, in, in Cambridge in modern times, and also Imperial College have had one for nearly 20 years. So uh, it, this, is, this is, I think, a good step forward, although maybe a little bit later than it might have been. Okay. So now I'm going to give you a, a, a very brief overview of the sorts of research that uh, go on in the department these days. Um, and, and this will be incredibly skimpy, right? Uh, it's a very big department, so there's an enormous amount going on. Uh, and uh, you can imagine to explain any of it in any detail would take ages, and to explain all of it in any detail would take days. So I'm, not going to, I'm really not going to try. So the first thing in my list is particle physics. Uh, we have a very big particle physics group in the department. Uh, this picture uh, here is a picture of the central barrel of the Atlas detector, which is at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, and is one of the two detectors which discovered the Higgs boson just over a year ago. Um, and the reason why I've got this picture up is that this, this barrel was built here, um, and that relates back to the, the support staff who I, and technical staff who I were talking about earlier, that, uh, that, that, with that we have very, very considerable capacity here for building things, and we build instruments for telescopes, instruments to go on satellites, and things to go in big particle physics experiments, for example. So th this, is, uh, this is a very complicated piece of machinery. Of course, it's mostly electronic, uh, which was built here, um, and well, it was finished in 2006, okay. and uh, was shipped out to, to CERN. This is a picture of the discovery of the Higgs boson. So the bump in the otherwise smooth line shows you the extra particles which are being, being produced. Uh, the extra, these are two photons. So what the LHC does is it collides two protons. And occasionally in this process, uh, you will, if the standard model is right, produce a thing, the, the Higgs boson, which is this famous boson which people have been looking for, for for 50 years now. One of the decay channels of the Higgs boson is to two photons. And in fact, that's the easiest uh, decay channel to look for. So what this bump tells you, shows you is that there is a slight excess of two photon events where the two photons are coincident, so that they came from the same, the decay of a single particle, um, round about a, a mass of round about 126 GeV. So that's about 126 times the mass of the proton. So that's the, that's the smoking gun for the Higgs boson. It's very, very heavy, all right? That's um, you know, the mass of a middling-sized atomic nucleus, and this is a single particle. So. Uh, next few years, we'll see more running at the Large Hadron Collider and more accumulation of information, which will slowly enable us to be identify you know, and be absolutely sure exactly which particle this is. But it is clearly a Higgs boson. 
the next thing on, on my list is astrophysics and, and planetary physics. And uh, we made a, a, a very big contribution to something else which recently appeared in the newspaper. This picture shows you the temperature fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background. So as you know, the whole universe ever since the Big Bang is bathed in microwave radiation, which has a, it's a corresponds to a very low black body temperature of about 2.7 kelvins. And uh, in the early days, you didn't really know whether this was completely uniform across the sky or whether there were actually small fluctuations. And in fact, there were small fluctuations, which are about one part in 10 to the five. So they're really tiny. Um, and the, uh, the red bits are where it's slightly hotter and the blue bits are where it's slightly colder in this picture. And uh, so you can see that as you look, you're basically looking across the whole sky here um, and there's a big background in the middle which is taken out because across the center of this picture goes the, in fact the Milky Way galaxy um, and there's a huge amount of emission from the Milky Way galaxy which has to be subtracted off very accurately in order to get this picture. So this is highly non-trivial a highly non-trivial picture to get. It was taken from the Planck satellite um, and uh, the analysis for, for the uh, cosmological model, as it's called, the basic cosmology, the way the universe expands, uh, was done by a group here. So, uh, and again, you know, the Planck satellite is something which will produce not just pictures like this, but many other, many other things. And uh, there will be you know, a steady stream of output from this over the next few years. The satellite itself has half stopped now because it's run out of, run out of coolant. The uh, cryogenic detectors have to be cooled and the stuff evaporates. And since he's up there in space, once he's at the Lagrangian point, which is a long, long way out, once it's run out of coolant, that's it. So it's a kind of one-shot thing. Uh, the next thing we do is plasma physics. Um, if you were here in the old days, really old days, you will recall probably one or two people who did plasma physics. Maybe there's somebody here who recalls Dirk Tahar, for example. Um, uh, but plasma physics pretty much died out in, in Oxford um, in, in the late 70s and 1980s, which was a bit strange because the Cullum Laboratory is just down the road. And the Cullum Laboratory is where the joint European Taurus is. It's the big, big uh, UK fusion, nuclear fusion laboratory. And uh, over the last 15 years, plasma physics in Oxford has been regenerated, and we now have a very big and strong group. Um, this picture is of a thing called a hole round. So a hole round uh, is, is a device to hold a target, which you then, uh, uh, you then blast with laser light from both sides. So there are big laser facilities. There's a national ignition facility in the US. And there are smaller facilities in this country uh, which do try to do laser-driven fusion, for example. That's what the National Ignition Facility was built for. Um, so far, it has to be said it doesn't work um, for various technical reasons which people are trying to understand. But this little device here uh, is a few millimeters in size. Um, and it is actually very finely manufactured. One of the problems with having big powerful laser beams coming in is of course these things have electric fields and uh, all sorts of funny electromagnetic effects will go on which can help scatter the light and so engineering these objects is actually very non-trivial. So plasma physics both at Cullum and, and at big laser facilities is something that we now do a lot of. Next thing on my list is quantum optics and quantum computers. So 
Um, and this is unlike the whole row in the previous picture, which wasn't, which wasn't made here. The, the, the object which is on the screen now was actually made here. And, and uh, it's, to give you an order, uh, a sort of idea of the size, it's a couple of centimetres long. And it was made, made in our fabrication facility. So what is it? Well, it, it's a device for trapping a single ion, I-O-N. Okay. Um, and and uh, the, the, what, it, what this does is it enables you to hold a single quantum state, actually for about two minutes. So at the time that this, uh, this, this trap was, was, was made, uh, it basically held the, held the record for a while for the longest living qubit, as they're called. So this is a quantum bit of information. Um, and the trouble with quantum bits of information is that they will decay through interaction with the environment. Okay, as you know, as you know, quantum mechanics is quantum mechanical systems are, are very vulnerable to having observations made on them, and of course, it's not just the deliberate observations that they're vulnerable to; it's all the other stuff which is going around, which, which will have the effect of decaying quantum of uh, decaying quantum states. Um, and so, holding something like an ion in a particular place to hold a quantum state is non-trivial because, in the process of holding it, you are in danger of destroying the quantum state. Okay. And that's why uh, these, these uh, that's one of the big challenges of building quantum computational devices, um, and it's one of the uh, one of the reasons why it, it you know it really is a fine art building devices like this, which will hold something, which it, and allow it to exist in a single quantum state for for periods of minute or more, which is really quite remarkable. So quantum computers are, are, are things which you know, have been around for a long time. Um, I think it's fair to say that there still isn't a technology around which would enable you to build a really big, really large, really commercial quantum computer. Right? Uh, but many different, many different technologies for doing this are being developed both here and elsewhere. Uh, next thing on my list is, is biological physics. So, so this is something which is new. Okay, this is, this is something which 30 years ago you wouldn't normally find in the physics department. Um, the picture is a schematic of a molecular motor. And if you talk to the girls outside uh, earlier, then, then they would have taught, told you more about these things. So uh, the, the basic, uh, basic point about biological physics is that, of course, biologi biological systems are chemical. There have been biochemistry departments forever, but obviously they're also physical. You know, I'm moving around, you're moving around. There are all sorts of mechanical processes going on in biological systems, um, and uh, they better obey Newton's laws. And, and uh, the big challenge is to understand how these things actually actually work. And what's made the, the there are two things I think which have really made the difference in an, enabling people to start studying biological systems and single cells and so on from a physics point of view. One is an experimental thing, which is purely down to instrumentation. Right? That you can now, for example, you know, watch watch objects which are re emitting single photons. If you want to watch what a single molecule is doing in some system, then you can excite it and it'll decay, but it will e emit a single photon. If you can't see that single photon, you can't watch what a single molecule is doing. So it's the development of of technology in physics labs which can do this kind of thing, which are, have made practical the the real time monitoring, for example, of the behaviour of molecules in cells. And I think the other big change, which is becoming more and more important, of course, is the availability of enormous amounts of computing power. 
Uh, this enables you to, to build models. It enables you to analyze vast amounts of you know, genetic data, for example, as is well known, but other sorts of data as well. Um, and to really get a, start to get a grip on the way these systems, which are made up of a very large number of components, are, are behaving. Next, my, next thing on my list is climate physics. So this is one of my favorite scary photos. Um, this is a photo which was actually taken by NASA Goddard, and it looks like it's clouds, doesn't it? Um, but actually it's not, it's smoke. It was, uh, it's taken over the Amazonian jungle and, and it is the result of fires. Uh, and uh, the reason why I show, I, I show this, this, uh, this picture is that it, uh, it's obviously sort of scary on general grounds, but there is a particular point which is that uh, you have this vast amount of smoke in the atmosphere, you have lots of particulates, therefore very you know, tiny smoke particles, uh, and once you dump lots of particulates in the atmosphere, you will, you will affect things like cloud formation. And clouds, of course, affect rainfall, they affect absorption of heat, and all of these things. So once you start doing this kind of thing, you are affecting the systems going on in the atmosphere, which ultimately determine what the weather is uh, and longer term what the, what the climate is. So for example, one of the, one of, we have a big climate physics group here who are, who are working on what the basic processes are, understanding what the basic processes are which drive the weather uh, and the climate. And, and this is just one of them. And so, for example, we do have, there's a group here led by Philip Steer who works on, on cloud formation and understanding how clouds are formed uh, and what their, you know, what their physical characteristics are. Um, at the other end of the, you know, the climate business, uh, there is the question about what you can do about it, how you can prevent people from burning uh, hydrocarbons. And of course, one way of doing that is, is photovoltaics. And so these are solar cells. These are cells which produce energy. So this is kind of comp, comp from sunlight. So this is kind of compound picture. So at the top right-hand side uh, is uh, something which looks like a load of solar cell panels on a roof. And that's right. That's what it is. Um, the top left-hand side picture um, is a, a cross-section. It's an electron micrograph of <coughs> a structure which is a printable photovoltaic cell. Um, we have a, a very strong group here led by Henry Snaith, which is working on, on producing photovoltaics which can be produced in very large quantities and, for example, printed onto the, build, onto the glass of buildings. Okay. And uh, there's a, a, a spin-out company called Oxford Photovoltaics, which was created just under three years ago um, to market one particular generation of, of, of this technology. But there have been enormous changes in this over the last, last two or three years. Um, and, and, and Henry currently holds the world record for the efficiency of solution processed photovoltaic devices, which has about doubled in the last two years. So uh, I think it's fair to say that, that the, the current situation is that this, the technology for this kind of thing is improving very, very rapidly. Um, and and it's now getting to the point where the efficiency, at least, is, is big enough that it's possible to imagine these things would compete with silicon-based solar cells, but at a fraction of the, of the price. Um, and that's one part of the equation. You need solar cells to be efficient, you need them to be cheap, and you need them to be durable. And of course, you know, as with many things in this life, 
Something which is really cheap is not, often not really efficient, and something which is really efficient is often not terribly durable, and so on. Right? So you have to solve all three in order to have a technology which is really effective in dealing with energy supply problems on a large scale. Uh, next one on my list is, is, uh, is quantum materials. Now, so these are. Sorry, get rid of the previous one. That's right. Okay. So when when you were you know undergraduates, you probably learned about semiconductors, and semiconductors are of course materials whose electrical properties depend on quantum mechanical effects in in the materials, um, and. They are just a, sem straight semiconductors, it turns out, are the tip of an iceberg. Right? And that, in fact, there are many, uh, many materials, often with very complicated crystal properties, which we'll come to in, in a minute, which have all kinds of bizarre properties uh, and potentially useful. So to give you an example of something, um, you all know what an insulator is. It's a chunk of material where if you put the batteries across, you know, the, the electricity doesn't flow. Um, it was discovered about eight or nine years ago, actually by a theorist, that uh, there was actually a class of materials which are now called topological insulators, where it's true that if you put a battery across this thing, electricity doesn't throw through the bulk. But what it does do is it flows around the surfaces which confine the bulk. Okay? So it, fl it flows only on the edges. And this is quite strange because the, the, the quantum mechanical system project, you know, pros, uh, quantum mechanical properties which allow this are, are, are something which really could have been realised any time in the last 50 years, I think, except that they weren't. So, you know, there are always surprises waiting around, even in a subject which has been as well worked over as, as quantum mechanics. And, and these topological insulators are a good example of a, a material whose weird properties depend crucially on quantum mechanics. This couldn't happen classically. Right? Um, which may well be technologically important in the years to come. Obviously, you get much lower heating effects, for example, if you only have very small amounts of current flowing in surfaces rather than much larger amounts of current flowing, flowing in the bulk. But they're pretty weird and wonderful materials. So if you look at the... Uh, this is uh, some work which was done in Oxford. So if you look at the top left-hand side, this shows you the... Uh, the crystal structure of a particular material, which is a topological insulator called bismuth telluride. Right. Um, and this is a single unit cell. Okay. So, uh, if you, you know, you, you, those of us who did undergraduate chemistry, sort of, or school level chemistry or something of crystals, you know, we used to salt or diamond or something like that, something which has a very simple unit cell. This has a very, very complicated unit cell. It has two sorts of tellurium sites. Okay, um, and it has many, many atoms in the in in the unit cell, but the material has this remarkable property that it is in fact a topological insulator, and so a lot of work is going on understanding the properties of materials like this. Some of them will turn out to be just weird, wonderful, but basically useless. Others will turn out probably to be the basis of new technologies in the future. Um, and, you know, if I knew which ones were going to do that, of course, I wouldn't tell you. I would keep the knowledge to myself. It's impossibly difficult to, to see at this, kind, at this sort of stage which ones will actually turn out to be the good ones. Okay. So the last thing on my list is accelerator physics. And um, so I always think this is rather fun because I enjoy asking people how many accelerators they think there are in the world. And... Uh, 
So if I ask you how many accelerators you think there are in the world, you think... Anybody like to hazard a guess? <laughs> 30, 1,000. We reckon there are about 40,000, maybe more. Okay? And the reason why is because, of course, it, you know, if you're thinking 30, what you're thinking about is sort of particle physics accelerators and things like that. But most accelerators in the world are, are in X-ray generators, they're in medical therapy machines, they're in lithography machines at Intel and things like that. They are, they are relatively low energy, relatively unexciting accelerators which are embedded in other systems. Right? And um, so once you, you, you realise that, you realise that, of course, uh, these things are actually economically important. Right? Um, they're not just things which are cutting edge of science, of science research, but they're things which are economically important. And once they're economically important, uh, it's very well worthwhile uh, finding new, more robust technologies which enable you to have things which are cheaper, smaller, and so on. And uh, one very promising technology for that is based on, on uh, laser-driven laser plasmas. Uh, and there's a lot of work going on here, which is led by Simon Hooker, who's in fact sitting in the middle up there, I see. Um, and doubtless writing down everything I say wrong about this. And um, so th these are very exciting. This is a very exciting development. It's something which has been in the realm of fundamental physics for a long time. This little device here is, again, something which is two or three centimetres long. Uh, and there is an accelerator cavity in the middle where you see the light coming out. So the, these, uh, these devices are now just getting to the point where it's possible to imagine actually building ones which are more like something which would really be a, a technology rather than a lab-based toy, okay, or lab-based system. So uh, that's a, a very important thing which is, which is uh, being done in, in the department, and I'm sure we'll you know, will, along with many of these other lines of research which are going on, lead to all kinds of exciting physics in the future, but other sorts of excitement as well, and probably things that one doesn't anticipate. Okay. So, so now I'm going to stop, and, um, and Derek is going to take over, and we're going to wind back 100 years for, from the sorts of science which are going on in the department now to what was going on 100 years ago. And How nice to see everybody. How many have I lectured to before? Do raise your hands. Well, it's very good of John to give me this final chance to interest you in atomic physics. <laughs> uh, well, uh, John has given you this rundown of the kind of physics that we're doing in Oxford now, and uh, I'm sure that it's, uh, much of it is new to you. And uh, what I want to do, of course, is to take you back 100 years to people and events, uh, which, uh, if you did physics here, will be familiar to you anyway. But uh, it's in the, on the internet and it's in reference books and so on. So why should I do that? What's the point of going back 100 years? Well, this guy, uh, the daddy of them all, Isaac Newton, he gave us the answer to that uh, by saying, with characteristic modesty, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And the point is that uh, physics is a cumulative subject. You couldn't do the sort of things that uh, John has been talking about if it weren't for the fact that our predecessors had put in so much labor and effort uh, establishing the basic principles of physics which we use to do our present work. So uh, it just so happens that 100 years ago exactly, 1913, then a piece of work was done by an Oxford graduate and much of it was done here in Oxford, which was of this brilliant, innovative type. Uh, 
And in a gathering like this, we have a centenary, I think it is all uh, uh, meet and proper that we should uh, recall the career of this remarkable guy. So who was he? You all know, of course, because the notice is all around the place. But he was Henry Wynne Jeffries Mosley. And uh, you may say, golly, he looks a bit young. Well, of course he does, but that's because he was killed at the age of 27, fighting in Gallipoli in the First World War. And you will see that uh, he only graduated in 1910. He then went to Manchester for a couple of years on a teaching appointment with Lord Rutherford, or Ernest Rutherford, as he was then. He stayed on until towards the end of 1913. Then he came back to Oxford. Then, of course, he joined up in the war, and that was that. So his entire research career was less than four years, less than the sort of time it takes to do a DPhil nowadays, perhaps. Nevertheless, he has been called, and I think rightly, the most promising of all the English physicists of his generation. And I thoroughly agree with that and hope to convince you of the same thing. I should say that that is a quotation from a book by, about Mosley by a guy called John Heilbronn, and this book is particularly valuable because it also contains a lot of correspondence written by Mosley. Now, uh, Mosley uh, came from an academic family. His father was a distinguished professor of anatomy here in Oxford, but uh, his father died when he was four, and he formed a very close bond then with his mother and his sister, and he used to write to them, and he wrote to them about his personal life, but he also, amazingly enough, wrote to them about his research. So we know a lot more about Mosley than we, we otherwise would do. So uh, I'm glad to acknowledge the help that John Heilbronn has given me in learning about Mosley. Well, so the next question is, what did he actually do? And in order to appreciate that, then I think we've got to go back to, uh, in context, we've got to go back to what was actually going on at the time. And 1913 was somewhere near the middle of one of the most remarkable periods of development of physics uh, there's ever been. I mean, the first three decades of the 20th century. At the beginning of that time, then, of course, we have this magnificent edifice of classical physics. We have the work of uh, Newton and James Clerk Maxwell uh, giving us this marvellous, microscopic description uh, of the, uh, the world about us. But not the microscopic uh, atoms. Well, most people believed there were atoms, not everybody, actually. Uh, Lord Rayleigh said, uh, it is a curious instance, he said, of the divergence of scientific opinion that where some people deny the existence of atoms, others have counted them. So some people believed in atoms and some people didn't, but uh, uh, those who did didn't know what was going on inside an atom. That is, the laws that govern the behavior of, atom, of material on that scale were just not known at all. So we wind forward 30 years and we come to 1930 and what have we got then? We've got quantum mechanics fully worked out and we know the description of atoms down to all but the very finest detail. Now, a lot of other things, of course, happened during that 30 years. I mean, relativity, radioactivity, a lot of work was done. But I still think that the uh, work that we do today is founded really much on the bedrock of having developed quantum mechanics uh, in association with our understanding of the atomic problem. So what did Mosley actually do? Well, as I say, he went to Manchester at the, when he graduated in 1910. And there he was lucky enough to work with Ernest Rutherford, who of course was one of the leading lights of the day, had a very thriving group. But he was also very fortunate because actually uh, somebody who visited Manchester from time to time, spent quite a bit of while there, that uh, Mosley was, was Niels Bohr, who of course was another of the major players on this stage. 
And so let's look at what the atom looked like to Manchester at that time. The reason I say Manchester was because uh, it wasn't necessarily the case that everybody believed uh, what Manchester believed, but they were right, and so let's call it the Manchester atom in 1912. Well, uh, not much to it, is there? But uh, anyway, everybody knew it was 10 to the minus 10 or so metres across, and there was certainly going to be electrons in there, and Rutherford's scattering experiments had demonstrated that there was, at the centre, a positive charge. The positive charge of the, uh, of the atom was situated there, and most of the mass as well. Now, even that raises problems immediately. I mean, why should such a thing as that be stable? Let's go to the simplest possible case. If you consider hydrogen, you've got one electron, you've got one positive charge, a hypothesis point particles, and yet they sit 10 to the minus 8, uh, 10 to the minus 10 metres apart. Now, why should they do that? Well, this is where, of course, Niels Bohr comes in, because he made a stack of radical assumptions uh, to account for the properties of hydrogen. He said that uh, the system had quantized angular momentum, that it only existed in certain states. For some reason, these states don't radiate, but you do get radiation if the system jumps from one of these states to another, and the frequency of the radiation is given by the Planck law, E equals H nu. Well, by making all those assumptions, he was able to come up with a correct description of the spectral lines of hydrogen. Hydrogen's got a nice simple spectrum, and uh, uh, Mosley, uh, sorry, Mosley Bohr was able to come up with the correct formula for these uh, frequencies, and it was correct in detail with no adjustable parameters at all. And so this, uh, one might have thought of, uh, would be very convincing, but uh, it wasn't particularly accepted uh, by everybody. And the reason for that was that when you come down to it, it he had uh, got a solution for a two-body system, but it didn't work for any other atom. All the other atoms got much more complicated spectra, and it didn't account for those. And so what actually was going on was that he'd made a stack of radical assumptions, but that he'd only really landed up with one formula which accounted for one particular case, but maybe that would, uh, maybe there were other ways of doing that. So, enter Mosley, okay, because what Mosley did was to look at spectra of heavier atoms. Now, I've just said that the spectra of other atoms were actually very complicated and you couldn't explain them by Bohr-type theory, but that's the visible spectra. Those are the spectral lines that come from the electrons that sit right round near the edge of the system. Now, if you go to the electrons which are right down near the middle there, and you look for very high energy transitions, because the electrons down here are heavily influenced by this strong nuclear charge in a heavy electric, uh, strong electric field, if you go for those, then you're studying these very high energy, so-called X-rays, then what you might hope then is that the energy of the system is strongly governed by the interaction with the nucleus, but the other electrons shouldn't matter anything like so much. So it could be that right down in the middle of every atom, there is a little bore atom trying to communicate with us, and Mosley was the guy who did it. So Mosley looked at these inner transitions, and he found, to his great delight, as you can imagine, that the X-ray spectra of atoms are all the same, except for one adjustable parameter, because they get more energetic as you go through the periodic table. But that adjustable parameter turned out to be the nuclear charge. And that was the first time that that was realized. He invented Z. He was the guy who said that an, uh, an element is characterized by the nuclear charge. And he wrote 
as follows. We have here a proof that there is in the atom a fundamental quantity which increases by regular steps as one passes from one atom to the next. This quantity can only be the charge on the atomic nucleus. Game set and matched Mosley, uh, you can see that this made a, a big difference to our understanding of atomic structure. I mean, it's a bit difficult to explain what an atom is doing if you don't know that its properties are governed by the nuclear charge, which until then, of course, they didn't. And, of course, it also gave a big boost to the Bohr type theory. Now, Bohr theory obviously wasn't right, but it was in the right direction. All the, all the uh, postulates that I gave you actually were eventually incorporated into quantum mechanics, and so the theory became very strong indeed. But the ramifications were much bigger than that. If we look at the uh, plaque, which is downstairs outside the Townsend building, which has been put up for Mosley, then you need not bother to read it because it's only what I told you, except for the top bit. If you look at it, it says National Chemical Landmark Chemistry. <laughs> yes, well, the, the point is that, of course, this discovery of Mosley's was an absolute bombshell to the chemists. I mean, up till that time, they'd had this periodic table developed by Mendeleev and others. And what was it? It was just a, an empirical classification. It was just a list of elements. And nobody, it gave periodic properties. I mean, it was a, a useful thing to have, but there was no science about it at all. And nobody knew whether there were gaps in it or, or how many elements there were. Indeed, for example, uh, you've got hydrogen has mass one, helium has mass four. Some people thought that there might be a couple of elements in there. Why not? And then along comes Mosley. And Mosley effectively says hydrogen, one. Bismuth, 83. 81 in between. I've looked at all these. We haven't been able to find this one, this one, and this one. But you give me some stuff, and I'll tell you what's in it. Now, you imagine a physicist going saying that to the chemists. Okay? It was an absolute, as I say, absolute uh, eye-opener and a bombshell. So that is what Mosley did. Okay? Now, I actually want to... Uh, that, that's what you all know, I'm sure. But to go back a little bit and see how it actually happened, I think, is, uh, is much more interesting, really. Because, of course, Mosley uh, arrived uh, in Manchester to work with Rutherford. They were very different types. I mean, Mosley was a self-assured and confident young man, very brilliant uh, student. Uh, but he was an Oxford person with a certain amount of reserve, whereas uh, Rutherford was this genial New Zealander, and uh, uh, Mosley didn't really terribly fit into the group. But uh, he he recognised Rutherford's qualities, of course, and Rutherford was shrewd enough to see what sort of a character he got there in Mosley. And so they got on very well, and uh, initially Rutherford gave Mosley little things to do with radioactivity to teach him the trade, which he did very well. And Mosley uh, performed these tasks with consummate skill. But Mosley was an independent sort of character, and uh, he was constantly egging Rutherford on to let him have some more independence and do things of his own. And Rutherford, to his credit, actually gave in, usually. And I think the relationship between them is shown fairly well by this letter that Mosley wrote to his mother. He said, uh, I am now doing a rather dull experiment repeating somebody else's work to please Rutherford. I hope that I'll soon be through with it so that I may go back to my own ploys. So he was working pretty independently, uh, even quite early on. But in 1912, neither Rutherford nor Mosley were remotely interested in x-rays. And the reason for that was that although they'd been around for quite a long time, nobody actually knew what they were. 
the thing was that they might be particles, they might be waves, just like everything else, of course. But, uh, and indeed, Bragg, William Bragg, who was the head of the department at Leeds, then uh, he was convinced they were particles. So anyway, uh, it was hard to show whether they were particles or waves, because you've got to show something's a wave, then you need to do an interference or a diffraction experiment or something like that. And that you couldn't really do with X-rays, because they're so short wavelengths that you can't really make slits or gratings so that you get convincing results. But then, of course, a German, von Lauer, had this really very clever idea. He thought in a solid, then the atoms are spaced in such a way that are closely enough together that if you do get constructive interference from two atoms of an X-ray, then maybe you will actually get maxima and minima. So we can treat the uh, particles of a solid as though they're essentially the sort of slits. So uh, he took a crystal. Uh, or rather he didn't, this was Germany in the early 20th century, he got his technicians to get a crystal, and he shone x-rays through, I shouldn't say that, should I, you're filming me, oh dear, all right, <laughs> cut that. So the x-rays went through the crystal, and beyond the crystal was a photographic plate, and there were spots on this photographic plate which showed definitely that there were wave effects going on that uh, there were certainly X-rays were waves. I mean, a lot of people had already thought that, but uh, of course Bragg hadn't. And Bragg got this paper from von Lauer and looked at it, and uh, to his credit, he said, oh God, yes, they're waves after all. But then he looked a bit more closely at the analysis, and he saw that uh, the, well, to be charitable, he saw that the von Lauer interpretation of the data uh, was obscure, but if we're being frank, it was actually completely misinterpreted. He got it wrong. And so Bragg and his son, Lawrence, then they worked through this, uh, uh, this material. They came up with a correct or a, a, a valid uh, interpretation of the data. And this is based on, uh, you probably all know this, but this is based on planes in the crystal, planes containing atoms. If the X-rays bounce off these planes and you get in constructive interference from successive planes, then you will get uh, a maximum. And so the Braggs uh, produced this uh, result, and of course it gave rise to X-ray crystallography, a, a, a field, and they got the Nobel Prize for it. But this isn't a lecture about the Braggs, it's a lecture about Mosley. What was he doing? Well, Mosley was sitting in his lab in Manchester and trying to think of a way to measure the wavelengths of his gamma rays. And he got hold of this paper by von Lauer. And he looked at it, and he saw it was wrong as well. And so he called in a friend, Charles Darwin, actually the grandson of the great Charles Darwin, who was also a research student. He said, come look at this. And so they looked at this paper, and they, worked through, and they, they could see that the explanation was wrong, and so they came up with the same explanation as the Braggs. And they got the paper uh, much later than the Braggs did, and they finished at about the same time. And uh, Mosley wrote to his mother. He said... You know that the main discovery was made by a German who found spots when X-rays were photographed through a crystal. We worked out the cause of these spots, but left the publication to Bragg, who was a day or two ahead of us. It was actually two days. So instead of one Mosley law, there could well have been two, but for two days. So that's extraordinary, actually. These two raw research students working in Manchester on, in a field which they knew nothing about, they looked at this paper, got it right, and these experienced people in Manchester, uh, in Leeds, then they only, beat the, they only beat them by a couple of days despite starting much earlier. I mean, that really shows Mosley's quality, actually. 
Well, Mosley was not a bit dismayed by this, he didn't care at all. So what he did was made friends with the Braggs, went off to Leeds, learnt as much as he could about X-rays, and then came back and set up a system back in Manchester. Because uh, he and the Braggs, they, they, they remained in touch, of course, and uh, they uh, both realised that you could actually do more than just study the crystal. I mean, if you use the X-rays to study the crystal, that's one thing, that's X-ray crystallography. However, if you know your crystal and you shine your X-rays on it, you can use the diffracted light, the reflected light, uh, to study and measure the wavelength of the X-rays. And, of course, that was what Mosley suddenly realised he could do. So he set off to do it. And he set up a, 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 an apparatus and put up a crystal and he read, wrote next to his mother, he wrote, we find that an X-ray bulb with a platinum target gives out a sharp line spectrum, which the crystal separates out as if it were a diffraction grating. Tomorrow we search for the spectra of other elements. Irrepressible, isn't he? There is here a whole new branch of spectroscopy, which is sure to tell one much about the nature of an atom. So he set off doing it. On his own, he built the apparatus, and Darwin describes him at work. Working day and night by himself with a very characteristic excess of energy, and in spite of constantly pulling his apparatus to pieces in order to improve it, he quickly got his main results. He was inventing techniques uh, as he went along, this research student, in a totally new field. How you, how you detect the X-ray, best way of doing that and how you measure the crystal orientation, and so on. All these things he was working out for himself and feverishly working away. And he did get the results very quickly, and he got enough results to demonstrate the validity of his hypothesis, that is, the existence of Z, and Rutherford saw that it was good and uh, uh, expedited the publication. And uh, so what do you think he did then? Well, what should he have done? He should probably have stayed in Manchester. He had a benevolent mentor. He had a system that worked, and he had support, and uh, he had a growing reputation. But he didn't. He stopped, and he came back to Oxford. Now, why on earth would he do that? Well, why am I standing here? Why are you sitting there? Because we all love the place, of course. And he was, a, he was an Oxford man, and he decided he wanted to be uh, that more uh, independence, and he came back. I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. But there's a lot of reasons why he should not have come back to Oxford. Let me give you a quotation from Wikipedia. It has to be admitted that before the beginning of the First World War, Oxford was not a university whose name immediately sprang to mind when the subject physics was mentioned. Now that is the understatement of the year, actually. <laughs> the head of department at the time had been appointed in 1865. He reigned for 50 years. He did no research whatsoever and encouraged nobody else to do it either. In 1900, John Townsend was appointed as a, as a professor here. He was a good physicist, but he wasn't actually interested in sort of modern developments in physics very much. And also, Robert Clifton wouldn't let him into the Clarendon, wouldn't let him do anything in the Clarendon, and it was 10 years before he got a building of his own, just next door there. And so physics was absolutely moribund at the time. Now, uh, uh, this didn't actually bother the establishment very much. Here is another quotation. The attempt to foist physical researches on Oxford is a sheer waste of labour and money. All this is only to distract and enfeeble the task of serious education, which means, of course, the study of dead languages and long-gone civilizations. So, uh, Mosley comes back. 
Why does he come back? Well, he hasn't got a job even. I didn't mention that, did I? Nobody was employing him. Townsend very generously gave him some lab space and he had a, a small grant from the Solvay Institute, largely due to Rutherford's uh, influence, I suspect. But uh, he hadn't got a job. And he really wanted, I mean, he knew that the work he'd done and was doing was top quality stuff. And so he wanted a job and he knew, as he wrote to his mother actually, that uh, unless you're banging on the door in Oxford, you're not going to get one. So uh, he came back. Now, anybody, this is where the story gets really astonishing, actually, because anybody who's ever done experimental research and moved from one lab to another, you know that it takes months to get back to where you were. In addition to that, you need colleagues who are interested. I mean, Oxford wasn't remotely interested in building atoms, and he had nobody, he had no colleagues at all. So he's working entirely on his own. And nevertheless, Within weeks, he's back up and running at full stretch. He's running three separate experiments because you actually need three different techniques for the work he was doing. And in case any of them went wrong, he still got something to do. And he ran through the elements in masterly style during the next few months, he did uh, all this work. He made mistakes. At one time, he managed to convince himself that bromine was a rare gas, but he managed to put that right, and by the time he actually published it all, then it was all present and correct. And that, I think, that, that feat of working on his own and doing that piece of work was probably one of the most remarkable sets of experiments ever in experimental physics, I think. Well, his uh, reputation, of course, uh, was growing by this time. This paper was in print. And uh, I must tell you about uh, a Frenchman, a French chemist called Urbain. And this chemist worked on the rare earths. And the reason a lot of people worked on the rare earths at that time, chemists, was because at the time of pre-Mosley, of course, nobody knew how many of them there were. And uh, nobody knew quite what properties they might have. And so they did distillations of uh, compounds in order to try and isolate new rare earths because if you did manage to find a new one and it was adopted, somebody might name it after you or you might get the Légion d'honneur or you'll be rich and famous or whatever. But anyway, it was quite a field of research was the rare earths. And so Urbain had been studying these things for 20 or 30 years and distilling and trying to find new rare earths. And then he saw Mosley's work and he thought, well, maybe I should go to Oxford and, uh, and uh, take some samples and see what Mosley makes of them. So he did that. He visited Mosley for two days uh, in Oxford. It's very interesting to imagine what their conversation was like, actually, because Urbain spoke not a word of English. And Mosley, because he'd been through the British public school system, of course, spoke fluent Latin and Greek, but, <laughs> but no modern languages whatsoever. So, uh, but they did manage to communicate, and Urbain uh, could only look on in amazement as Mosley popped this stuff in his apparatus and said, well, you've got this and this, but you haven't got that. And Urbain was just flabbergasted, and he disappeared back to France, and this is what he wrote back to Mosley afterwards. I have translated it. I will not do the accent. Right. He said, I have thought much about my visit to Oxford, and particularly about what science will call Mosley's law. This law gives a basis for the classification of Mendeleev, which, from a scientific point of view, is merely a pretty story. Vive la loi de Mosley! It deserves to rank among the fundamental laws of chemistry. You have given, in no time at all, a total and definitive proof of arguments which it took me 20 years of labour to put together. So there you are. 
And Mosley's reputation grew. He was invited to give talks. He went to conferences. Uh, he would certainly have got a Nobel Prize for this work, and very probably Clifton's chair. But he joined up, and that was that. So I want to finish by giving you one or two comments about Mosley made afterwards. There are many, many tributes that were made to Mosley, but here are one or two of them. Niels Bohr in 1962. You see, actually, the Rutherford work, that's Rutherford scattering, was not taken seriously. We can't understand today, but it wasn't taken seriously at all. There was no mention of it. The great change came from Mosley. Then we have J.J. Thompson. Now, J.J. Thompson discovered the electron and was, of course, an exceedingly distinguished physicist. But he put forward the plum pudding model of the atom, which, of course, uh, Moseley and Rutherford and Bohr comprehensively destroyed, and Moseley recalls with some glee a conference at which it was buried. But, so you might expect J.J. Thompson to be slightly less generous, but this is what John Thompson said to his great credit. This was one of the most brilliant discoveries ever made by so young a man, and science suffered a grievous loss when he fell. And finally, I've just chosen a French chemist, a guy called De Bruyne. This wasn't Louis De Bruyne, but it was one of the same clan, and he was a very distinguished uh, French chemist. And the French are not necessarily uh, terribly generous when it comes to, well, so <laughs> here we go. He said about Mosley's work, it is one of the greatest advances yet made in natural philosophy. Well, so that is Mosley. And I think, having heard what John said about the work that's going on at the moment, you can see that we've come really a long way in the last hundred years. But I do think that it was Mosley who kick-started it. And I think that we've all benefited from the work done by Mosley and we should appreciate it. And so I would like to say, along with Urbain, vive la loi de Mosley. Thank you. Okay, so, so the, um, yeah, the fate of Clifton's physics department is something which bears heavily on heads of department, right? We don't want another 60 or 70 years of nothing at all. And uh, I, I hope one of the things that, that uh, you know, this is brought out, it, it, it is that the, you, you know, there are tremendous scientific challenges. There were tremendous scientific challenges ahead when Mosley did his work 100 years ago, as we now know. Um, and, and uh, of course, many of them have been solved. Many of them have been resolved. Many of the questions of that time have been sorted out. Um, well, is the subject finished? Well, no, not at all. There's just a whole load of new questions and different questions and different sorts of problems. Uh, and I, I think that uh, you know, what, you, what, what I hope you, you saw from the things I was talking about earlier is that things are, are getting ever more demanding, that, that uh, we're looking at ever more extreme conditions, um, we're looking at ever more delicate, delicate phenomena. And... Um, that's, uh, that's led us to formulate over the, over the last few years something which is called the New Clarendon Laboratory Project. One of the things you probably noticed if you were here some time ago is that not a lot has changed. That uh, we, we're still sitting pretty much in the buildings that we were, we were sitting in 30 or 40 years ago, apart in fact from this lecture theatre. 
Um, and, and the basic point of the new cloud and laboratory project is, is to begin to replace the infrastructure of the department. And this will take a long time. This is not a, a one-off one thing. The department is extremely big. Um, uh, it's not sensible to replace it all at once anyway. Uh, but there is now a plan which will result in the replacement of it over a period of about 25 years and ultimately will lead to the whole physics department being on this Clarendon laboratory site. At the moment we're split, as you know, there's a part over by the Banbury Road. Uh, ultimately we will end up over, uh, all, over, all over here uh, and uh, hopefully that will lead to all sorts of different interactions between people which are rather difficult at the, at the moment. And we're starting with, with uh, move, basically, firstly moving theoretical physics out of the Keeble Road terraces, terraces, which would have been familiar. They were there when Clifton arrived, and they're still here now, um, and currently occupied by theoretical physics, and also with, with new modern laboratories. And, and so this, is, this shows you a sort of skim, this shows you a picture of the what the building will, will look like, and it will go on the car park in front of the Lindemann Laboratory. So um, this, is the first, this is the first big project of, of uh, the scheme to re replace the, the infrastructure, and it will, it will start to provide us with the sorts of facilities that we need to develop whatever is the next 100 years are going to, going to hold, right, following on from the science which is, which is done now. And, uh, of course, in order to do this, we need to do, do all sorts of things. One of the things we need to do, of course, is raise the money to build it. And, uh, we, but uh, we thought of quite, quite a lot of, we're in the process of, of doing that. But we thought that it would be uh, really a great thing to, to honour the effect that Mosley had on, on kick-starting science in Oxford. Um, and so we've decided to set up a thing, uh, uh, an entity called the Henry Mosley Society uh, for people to, to support physics in Oxford. And um, I'm, very, I'm very pleased that Jay here uh, decided, decided to be one of the sort of founding members of the, of the Henry Mosley Society. Um, and so we're going to finish up before we go and get a, a drink uh, by Jay saying a, a few words about his view of the physics department from an alumnus. And now I'll give you that. And then you hold on to that. Okay. I have about an hour, yeah? <laughs> um, just to give a bit of background, I was a, an undergraduate here and then I did a, a doctorate in particle theory with Chris Whelan Smith um, and in between that I had a year in Cambridge doing part three maths, no, nobody's perfect. Um, and then I went off and did uh, some postdoctoral research for several years and then eventually I got stuck and uh, a friend who's in fact in the audience here, another physicist, offered me a job in the city. And I thought I'd better take that for a whole multitude of reasons. I just got married, uh, my wife was pregnant, I was stuck on my research project, all sorts of rational things. Uh, and thoroughly enjoyed that, I have to say. So that's where I've been for the last few years. Um, so I was approached uh, about the new physics building and it was explained to me that this was a proposal uh, and there were, I was shown some pictures. There was a big, very impressive building uh, planned and it was explained that uh, the idea, you can see it here, would be that the theorists would be, have these offices with panoramic views over the parks, um, and this would help advance the, uh, the subject. Uh, the experimentalists are going to be down in the basement. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, it sounds like the theorists are designing it, right? And I said, no, 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 don't worry, it's designed by architects, it won't, it won't collapse. 
So my motivation in pledging a very modest, uh, modest amount to support this um, was probably twofold, I think, thinking about it. First, a sort of basic love of physics. Um, I came across physics, like all of us, I guess, at school as a teenager, um, and already then got a sense of the sort of beauty of the subject. And in particular, what I liked is you can actually calculate things. You, know, you can do stuff. Um, I can give you examples of that. And then, for example, I was very impressed by the muon G minus two, you know, 10 significant figures of accuracy, calculated and then measure it. And it's the same, you know, a little bit of error, but it matches, fantastic. I was very struck by that as a schoolboy. I remember also in about, I think it must have been around 1980, there was a Horizon television program with Hawking. And uh, it was a very good program. And he was talking about uh, unification of particle physics, of particle theory. And uh, you know, lots of his graduate students there, and they would all write with their biros on the coffee tables, and the cleaning lady would just wipe it all off after, after they'd finished. And um, he, said, he said, we're making such progress, you know, we think in a few years' time we're going to have it all wrapped up. Wow. I think it was N equals 8 Susie he was talking about, I think. And I thought, wow. And I sort of had images of theory departments. Now, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're done. We're finished. You know, lock up the door, mothball it, you know, go off and do something else. Go off to the beach. Um, so I thought, well, I better get to university quickly before all the fun is over. And uh, so I did. And so I thoroughly enjoyed undergraduate. But it was only as a, as a graduate student, and this is perhaps part of the problem in a sense. It was only as a graduate student I really began to, to see what a fantastic subject physics really is. You know, the, the barrier to entry is actually quite high. In fact, it's very high, um, which is a pity because it's only, I, well, my, only, my own view is it's only really at that level that you really get a sort of feel for how wonderful the subject is. So, and I think people share that view as well. I remember talking to one of the postdocs, I was a graduate student, talking to one of the postdocs and asked him, uh, what are you working on? And he said, I'm working on the fundamental goal of particle theory. Wow. What's that? Tenure. <laughs> he got it as well, by the way. The other thing about physics that is that it's relevant today. It's not a purely abstract thing. There are all sorts of aspects of physics that are relevant today, I think. Um, the world is only becoming more mathematical for a start. Uh, second, uh, it's a difficult subject, uh, requires sustained thought, and especially at the sort of research level, you've got to really understand what's going on, you know, not just sort of how something works, but why, and really drill down into that detail, so have a real deep understanding of it. And in particular, for example, um, people in the way they explain things, I remember always, and he's in the audience now, Chris, my supervisor, um, was always beautifully clear. Also, everything seems simple for Chris. You know, it's terribly complicated and difficult for me, but I remember sometimes before I'd go and see him, I'd actually stop outside his office, and before just knocking on the door and going in, just wait and think through, okay, I need to say, you know, what do I want to say? Well, there's this point I want to make, and there's that point, and that. And yeah, I think that's it. There are the three points I've got to get over before he starts talking with ideas that come back. You know. And that sort of training, I found, it was actually extraordinarily useful, because um, in, in business now, where in, in the city, there are many occasions where you actually have to present to people, um, maybe very briefly and formally, sometimes in a formal context. But that clarity of thought and that, that possibility of, being able, of having a really 
really good understanding of what you're talking about. If you have that, it's extraordinarily useful um, and very, very valuable. Um, and then there's also the mathematical side of things. Um, there are some people in the city who do actually do a lot of maths, a lot of modeling. I personally don't, I do other stuff. Um, but it's very useful to have that facility. We get a lot of good uh, graduates, a lot of good students who come, come to see us for interview, really some very, very good CVs. And I have one question I ask all of them. It was a very simple question. Um, all, these are all people with scientific backgrounds. I say, how much maths have you done? And the answer is, oh, quite a lot, quite a lot. Okay, good, good. Can you differentiate x to the power x? And most people think a bit, and, uh, yeah. And they say, oh, yeah, you've got to take the log, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, that's great. Okay, move on. But some people, you get people going, yeah, x to the x minus 1, right? No, no, that's not right, is it? Yeah. And you see instantly, they never, ever understood basic differentiation. Straight away, in two moments, you, know, you, you realize that. You see straight through. Anyway, there are lots of other questions we can ask like that, but that was, a, that was a fun one. The best answer, there were two good answers came to that, a French guy. The French, by the way, we like the French a lot. They have very, very strong mathematical background. I mean, they, they really are good, those guys from Logon's Ecole. He said, yeah, yeah, you take the log, right? Yeah, there's a problem at x equals zero. Be careful. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> and another good answer, somebody said to me, hmm, yeah, yeah, I take the log. Yeah, he said, I don't think that function ever occurs in nature, does it? I thought, wow, I don't know about that. And I thought about it afterwards. I think, if I remember rightly, Stirling's approximation to the exponential, that's n to the power n, roughly. So maybe it's not nature, maybe it is, I don't know. So that was a good answer. So, so it's a fantastic background, training, um, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's a, you know, even if you don't go into a career in research, uh, having done physics for three years, for seven years, for 15 years even. It's a great facility. There are all sorts of useful aspects uh, that, that it brings out, that it, that it uh, accentuates. Um, so, and I think this will be, continue to be the case. It's very, I'm very struck by the fact that sort of popular, um, popular interest in physics now that seems to have become much stronger Almost everybody now has, has, an, has heard of the Higgs boson, which if you think about it, is quite extraordinary. I mean, up until a year ago, this was a theoretical particle, um, you know, almost on the front page of the sun. You know, they'd heard about it, which is fantastic. I mean, this is really, really fantastic. So very happy about that. Um, so I'm very happy to be a member of the Mosley Club. Um, John actually said, well, you can be the first member, number one, if you like. And so, well, it's a bit embarrassing. Can't I be number, I don't know, 137 or something like that? That's a bit less ostentatious. Um, the thing is, the, thing, the point about a club is that you need to have members, right? You know, I, can't, I don't want to be sitting around smoking a cigar with my brandy on my own. You need to have other members. What we want is as many people to be involved, uh, to interact, to get involved in this project as possible. Um, if nothing else, to interact, and it's fantastic to see so many uh, old members of the university coming along here and interacting. We had, there was, in fact, there was an event in London uh, about six months ago. Um, <coughs> the uh, Richard Golding, Dr. Richard Golding, hosted a drinks party uh, for physicists um, in a fantastic penthouse flat, which I believe he owns. 
um, overlooking the river, overlooking the whole of London. It was a really fantastic event. There were so many really interesting people to talk to, people doing all sorts of different things. The common denominator was their physics background. So I think it's a fantastic thing to support uh, this project, and I would very much hope that there will be uh, many more members of this Mosley Club, uh, and uh, that this will be a very positive movement going forward. Okay, thank you. Okay, so thanks very much, Jay. Um, so thank you all for, for coming. I, I hope that it's, uh, that it's been interesting. I hope that we've uh, you know, brought across to you that uh, science is still motoring in Oxford 100 years after Mr. Mosley gave it a kickstart. Uh, and uh, I hope that you'll all come and join us for a drink around the other side, the front of the theatre, uh, right now. So thanks very much.